Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy. Uh, today we're reading chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Um, we began a series last week in 1 Timothy, and we summed up the, the series theme in uh, the series title, which is Living as God's Household. Um, and if you remember, essentially last week, we gave some introductory notes, which was that uh, 1 Timothy is written by Apostle Paul. He's an authorized messenger of the Lord Jesus, and he writes to his true child in the faith, Timothy, and he writes to Timothy and the church that Timothy pastors, and he basically says, here's how you should live as a family of faith. Here's what it means to live as Christians in the household of God. Now, this letter was written about 2,000 years ago, and here we stand 2,000 years later receiving and reading this letter. And for asking the question, well, what is God up to here, and how does he want this family of faith to live out its faith? Then we must turn and listen to what Paul here writes to Timothy. Uh, today's topic is on sound doctrine, and the title of the sermon is Sound Doctrine Leads to Love. And so it's with listening ears I invite you to stand with me so that your standing and physical posture reflects your heart's posture, which is to remind us that we read and receive God's word with reverence. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that, you may not, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit come and fill our hearts. Awaken us, Lord, from slumber. Free us from distraction. Help us to listen intently to your word. Lord, we know that physically with the dreariness and the gloominess of the day and the weather, often our hearts can respond equally, but implant in us the joy of salvation and the joy of hearing your word. And give to us an attentiveness, not only of mind and head, but of heart and soul, so that we would receive from your word, be built up in the truth, O oh Lord, because we desire to be that kind of people for your glory. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let me begin with a question. Are you any good at reading maps? Now, I'm not asking whether you're good at following the instructions that Google Maps tells you, or I'm not saying, uh, are you good at being able to take a map of the world and identify where the different countries are? I'm talking about unfolding a map, locating where you are, point A, where you need to go, point B, and then being able to chart your course there. Now, already some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean unfold a map? Do you mean like open an app? Like I can do that, but there were once these things called maps that you uh, unfolded and basically a map would help you get from where you are to where you needed to be. And so this isn't like traveling across the world, something as simple as getting from here to New York City. You would unfold a map and look and read it and it was a skill you had. You know, I'm impressed at my parents for a lot of things. I mean, they immigrated to the States not knowing the language, they found work, 
They um, saved money, started and raised a family, sent us all to school. Then they started a business. They retired from their business. I'm so impressed at so many things, but one of the things I'm most impressed at is their ability to read maps, to drive all across the country looking at just a piece of paper. Now, maps are helpful because they're navigational tools. They not only show you where you are, but they help you get to where you need to be. And I begin that way because the Word of God, the Bible, is a map that God has given to Christians so that we can navigate life here in this world. It shows us where we are and how we, need, and how we can get to where we need to be. And so the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God, however you want to call it, it provides for us a map of our lives so we can navigate life as God has called us to. And one of the ways it does that is it gives to us something called doctrine. Sound doctrine that, as we'll see, is vital for the health and the life of the spiritual family of faith. Sound doctrine is our topic today. And we talk about sound doctrine because the focus of our passage today is actually on its opposite, false doctrine. And how false doctrine absolutely devastates and divides the household of God. And so this morning, uh, we get to an interesting part of the scriptures. Because if you remember, what did Paul say was the statement letter of 1 Timothy? Now, let me go back and read for you 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul summed up the purpose statement of this letter. And he writes this. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if you delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul says, the whole purpose of my writing is so that you know how to live as the church, as God's household. So then he begins with an introductory greeting. He introduces himself. He identifies his recipients. And then he begins the body of his letter. Now, he just told you that he's writing to tell you how to live as God's household. And so what might you expect Paul to talk about? You might expect Paul uh, to talk about how in the household of God you should come up with a proper budget or how in the household of God the youth ministry should be run. But Paul introduces himself and then he gets into how the household of God should behave. And then he begins by talking about doctrine particularly false teachers and false doctrines. So let me point you to verse three, and we read there these words. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, here we get the context of this book and some valuable insight into the things we need to know, and that's this. Who is Timothy? Yes, he is the true child of, um, in the faith of Paul, but Timothy is also the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? And that is going to be, by the way, the same Ephesus that the book of Ephesians is written to. Now, back then, churches didn't have church names. They were only uh, called by the place, their location. Uh, I personally like to think the church was formally called the First Presbyterian Church of Ephesus uh, and that it was in the PCA, uh, the Presbyterian Church in Asia Minor. Um, the speculation, uh, don't write that down, but I'll confirm it in heaven. And Paul is writing to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And there, while Timothy is pastoring, he receives a word from his spiritual father, and his mentor, Paul. And Paul's urging him, it says, or another translation is begging him, pleading with him to stay in Ephesus because there's a major problem in the church. Now, there have been a few times that my pastoring here at Cornerstone where I've received notice from our other elders that there's been a major problem in the church. 
Uh, one time it was uh, that the chairs we bought for the sanctuary weren't showing up and we'd been scammed out of $10,000. And another time it was that our church basement had flooded and everything is ruined and we're gonna need to replace everything. This is usually what you expect when you hear there's a big problem in the church. Paul writes to Timothy, says there's a big problem in the church, but it's not a budget crisis. It's not a building maintenance issue. It's not that the retreat center that they booked a year ago now canceled their contract and we don't have a place to do retreat. That's not the problem. The problem is there are certain persons, unnamed in the letter, but known to the church, certain persons who are teaching a different doctrine. Now, why is that an issue? Well, what is doctrine? Doctrine is a faithful summary of the Bible's teaching on a particular topic. That's what doctrine is. A faithful summary of the Bible's teaching on a particular topic. So you can have a doctrine of God. What does the Bible have to say about God? A doctrine of man. What does the Bible have to say about humanity? A doctrine of Christ. Who does the Bible say Christ is? Now, the problem Paul is saying with different doctrine is that it's not faithful to the Bible. It's a deviation. It's steering away from the truth. And we actually get a little bit more insight into what that is in verse four, where Paul elaborates in this way. He says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's saying rather than teaching and explaining sound doctrine faithful to God's word, these teachers are devoting themselves to two things, myths and genealogies. Now, what is a myth? A myth is a fable. A myth is a made-up story that has no foundation. Some of you grow, grew up uh, hearing superstitious myths, maybe from your parents, right? Don't sleep with a fan on in a, you know, door, in a room where the doors are closed because you might die. And that's a superstitious myth. Or don't you dare swallow your gum that you chew because it's going to stay in your stomach for seven years, right? What are these myths? Myths are basically foundationless, factless stories. And so some people in the church are considering myths and really interested in them. And the second thing that they're really interested in is what Paul calls endless genealogies. Basically, what was happening is there were people in the church who loved reading the genealogies in the Bible, which is quite interesting because those are the things that we have the hardest time reading in the Bible. But they love studying the different names and tracing the different bloodlines and the lineages, and they're making connections. Well, here in Genesis, it has this name, and it's connecting with this in Chronicles, and it's connecting with this. And they had all sorts of fun, and people were really interested because they were saying, wow, I never knew that stuff. And Paul's saying it's endless because you're just making it up. And if you make it up, you can endlessly spin a web of lies. And what they were doing is they were studying the genealogies and they were coming to conclusions with all these bizarre truths. And so Paul says, stop them from teaching myths and endless genealogies because one, it's a departure. It's different doctrine. It's not sound doctrine. And two, it's disrupting and dividing the household of faith. It's ruining the peace and unity of the church. You see, the NIV translates that word speculations as controversies. Basically, he's saying in the end, people were arguing and disagreeing with these different doctrines, and it brought a lot of chaos and confusion into the family of faith. So you can kind of imagine it, right? Some people come into church one day and they're like, wow, did you? I discovered this thing that I never saw before. Did you know that this connection is made between this Old Testament person and this Old Testament person? Oh my gosh. And the other person is sitting there going like, oh man, I didn't know that. I thought like, I thought like Christianity was like Jesus dying for my sins. And the person's like, no, you have it all wrong. And Paul's saying, 
that kind of confusion and chaos is disrupting the church. It's dividing the church. Now you have people looking down on others. You didn't know that? That's what you believe? And so in the end, Paul says, Timothy, he says in verses three and four, Timothy, it's your duty as the pastor, as an elder in this church to put a stop to the false teaching. Okay, that's what those verses are about. Now, what does that mean for us? Two implications I wanna tease out with you. The first implication is this, sound doctrine should unify us as a spiritual family. Sound doctrine should unify us as a spiritual family. If false doctrine divides and disrupts the family of God, then what's the solution? And I think some people will say, well, if it divides and disrupts, then the solution is to abandon doctrine. Why talk about it? It's gonna just stir up more issues. But the answer and solution is actually quite the opposite. If false doctrine hurts the family of God, then the solution is for the family of God to commit themselves to sound doctrine, to right doctrine. Right? In the end, if doctrine is just a faithful summary of God's truths revealed in the Bible, then there's nothing more important for us as a church to gather around than sound doctrine. And it's really sad these days because Christians unify and gather around all kinds of things that are less worthy. Some Christians unify and get behind a certain brand of Christianity, a certain celebrity in the Christian faith, maybe a brand that a church is putting forth. Some Christians unify around the style of praise and worship and the arena type concert feel of praise at a church. Some Christians unify around political positions and political parties and views. But here's the problem with all of that. Christians who unify around these things show no distinction from unbelievers who unify around those same things, right? Anybody can be behind a celebrity, the cult of personality, a brand. Anybody can gather because they enjoy this artist and they come together in a concert with people who are very different themselves because we're united by this idol or this group. Lots of people can assemble at a political rally because of shared political views. The point is there is nothing about unifying around these things that distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian. But the household of God, the redeemed people of Christ should show something different and that's to be unified around what we believe God says in his word. Now here's the thing about that, by the way. Churches therefore need confessions of faith that they can gather around and unify around. Now, like all of us can say that, um, many people can take the Bible and say like, this is what I believe, let's unify around this. Um, and that sounds super spiritual because it's the Bible and we should unify around the Bible. But it's not as simple as that because you know what Jehovah's Witness can say like, let's unify around this. And a Mormon can say, let's unify around this. And then, of course, you know, they'll pull out their Watchtower magazines or the Book of Mormons. Oh, and also around that. And so we actually need, the church needs some kind of confession that we unify around. And historically, do you know what that's been? It's been the Apostles' Creed. For almost 2,000 years, the larger universal church gathers together. And maybe you grew up in your church saying the Apostles' Creed or, or you know, maybe the Nicene Creed, which is a little bit longer. And you say the creeds and what does it do? It, it unites the people in the room, but it also unites you with the global church across the world. And then it unites you with the church back in history. 
And so we love the Apostles' Creed. We love the Nicene Creed and we recite it because when we say it, we're saying we believe the Bible teaches the doctrines in the Apostles' Creed. Amen. Praise God. And you may be thinking, well, I don't remember the last time we've recited the Apostles' Creed here at this church. Well, that's because here at Cornerstone, we are unashamedly a Reformed Presbyterian church. I do remember when we were coming out with the church sign for this new building, we were debating whether or not we should include the word Presbyterian in there. The argument went, you know, Presbyterian, that just makes the church name look really, really long. How's it going to fit? Are we going to do it in three lines? There are a lot of questions about that. You know, my whole thing is like, man, Presbyterian is like really, it's a hard word to spell. I mean, like if I can't spell it, maybe we shouldn't have it. But at the end of the day, if you look at the sign, it says Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Why? Because it's our way of putting forth to the congregation what it is we believe, the sound doctrine that we hold to. And what we hope it does is it actually doesn't divide us, it unifies us. We hold to, as a church, historic reformed confessions and catechisms as a way of saying, hey, everybody, we're going to be forthright and honest about what we believe as a church. We're not hiding theological truths up our sleeves or behind our backs. And once you become a member, we pull it out and say, well, you didn't know, but you also signed up to believe this. You know, as a church in our worship service, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism. That's new to some of you. A lot of people got it confused with the Hindenburg Catechism. And Hindenburg, by the way, is a the airship that caught on fire in the 30s. It's not that. Um, the only similarities that they uh, are from Germany. But uh, other than that, you know, we, we confess the Heidelberg Catechism. And sometimes, you know, I, I think people are like, the language is old, right? Uh, it's kind of long. It's lengthy. It's archaic. Why do we do it? And the reason, reason we recite the Heidelberg Catechism, the reason we recite the Westminster Catechism it's not to toot our horn and consider ourselves theologically superior to others, but we confess it week after week as a church so that all who gather together knows what this family of faith affirms. We make our confession known. This is what we believe. This is the truth we unite around. And friends, I hope you realize that it's a good thing. It's not separatist. It's not elitist. We're not looking down on other denominations or other churches. We're not pursuing dry and dead orthodoxy. We're saying this is the truth, the summary of faith, the sound doctrine that we believe. And we hope you believe it too, because from this sound doctrine, we worship a great, glorious, and gracious God. So, sound doctrine should unify us as a spiritual family. Here's the second implication. It's also very important, but not often thought about. Number two, elders shepherd the church by guarding against the false teaching. Now, when you think of elder, you may think of the metaphor of shepherding because the Bible uses that. And it's a really helpful metaphor to understand the work of the elders in the church. But it's unhelpful when we don't know what shepherding means and we just kind of read into it whatever we want to read into it. Paul understands one of the important roles of shepherding the work of the elders as guarding against false teaching. Now, I already said this. Where is, pa uh, where is Timothy pastoring? He's pastoring in Ephesus. Now, you may not know this, but Paul was actually in Ephesus years earlier. And in the book of Acts, we see that Paul is in Ephesus. He's actually there for three years, discipling people, preaching, teaching, building up leadership. And after three years, Paul is finally leaving 
Ephesus. And so he meets with the Ephesian elders and he has a real heart to heart, right? It says that he's crying and he's, he, he was weeping, he was shedding tears and he's having this long, you know, farewell address. Those things, you know, are generally pretty sad. And Paul imparts these words in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. Hear it now. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, you, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says this, he says, hey, church in Ephesus, it's only a matter of time before the wolves, the false teachers are gonna come in and start leading people astray. And so what did he exhort the elders as shepherds of God's flock to do? He says, make sure to protect the household of God from false teaching. That's what he's doing here in 1 Timothy 1. He's saying, Timothy, I'm reminding you to shepherd God's flock by protecting the church. Now today, officer nominations end. And as a church, as we think about elders, as we think and envision what should they be like, the, the real question is not what do we think an elder should be? The real question is what does God say an elder must be? What does God say an elder must do to serve the family of faith? And sometimes we have only aspects of the truth, but not the whole truth. Because on the one hand, some people view elders in the church as, as oh, the men who rule the church, the men who run the church through decision-making. And so uh, sometimes we, we view elders only in terms of like, uh, they're more businessmen than they are spiritual officers. And then on the other hand, some of us view elders as those who should just, uh, they should provide like this deep personalized, individualized care for each and every member. And oh, the elders, they need to be like personal counselors and accountability partners and, and spiritual advisors. Now, we need to realize that both are true. They're responsibilities of the elders. But among that, and one that we so often forget and neglect, is this responsibility. An elder as a shepherd of the church must guard the church against false teaching. And Paul makes this very clear. He lists out qualifications for elders in two places. First is 1 Timothy 3. We'll get to it in a few weeks. The second place is in Titus 1. And let me read for you what Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1. He writes this. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What must that elder be like? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. Paul saying, Titus, remember elders are called to protect the flock of God. Here in 1 Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, you must protect the flock of God. What he's saying in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders is, hey, be ready to protect the flock of God. Protect them against what? Against false doctrine. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, to be quite honest, it's hard to detect practically because the work of an elder protecting the church against false doctrine is much like the work of the AV team. The audiovisual team, I love our audiovisual team. They do so much for us. But here's the thing about them. You can't tell when they're doing a good job. In fact, if they're doing a great job, you really can't tell. Why? Because if they're doing their job, there's no hiccups in service. They're doing their best work when there seems to be no problems. Now, of course, as soon as one little mistake, the PowerPoint click is a little late, the mic isn't unmuted on time, everyone begins to notice. But if they are doing their job properly, then there is peace throughout the service. In the same way, 
When a church is filled with biblical, faithful teaching, sound doctrine is promoted. When members are united around the truth, the elders are doing their shepherding role well. Because nobody's going to notice when speculations and controversies arise because they're quelled or kept at bay the way it should be. Now, as I wrap, this, wrap up this implication, the real question is just like, so we're nominating elders. This is, a, this is always a really important uh, part of our church life. So we're going to nominate them. It ends tonight. Then uh, after some training, there's going to be an election. And then they're going to be the elders of the church. Like, what are you going to expect from them? And you say, well, I expect them to be faithful shepherds of God's flock. Well, what does that mean? Does being a faithful shepherd mean they should pray for you? Yes, of course they should pray for you. But then again, all Christians should pray for one another. So you should expect that from everybody. Should the elders bear your burdens? Absolutely, they should bear your burdens. But then all Christians are called to bear one another's burdens. So you should expect that from everybody. Should the elders encourage you from the word of God? Absolutely, of course they should. But then again, all Christians are called to teach and admonish one another. You see, elders, yes, they should do all of these things alongside every other member because this is a ministry that we're all called to. But uniquely, one thing the elders must do that no other member does is guard the church against false teaching and so protect the family of God from being divided. I know that point seems heady, it seems abstract, but dear friends, I feel like it's going to come out, especially as we as a church enter into now deeply the 21st century. We will need to protect the church by guarding against false teaching. Okay, that's verses three and four. Let's go to verses five and seven. Uh, the aim, Paul writes this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, Paul here says, what's the whole point of sound doctrine in the end? The final aim, the Greek word is telos, the purpose, the goal. And he says this, the reason you need to confront false teaching and correct false teaching is not just for the sake of doctrinal clarity or doctrinal purity. He says the aim of confronting false teaching is for the sake of love. The false teachers, these certain persons, have forgotten about love. And so the teaching on myths and genealogies has caused them to swerve or wander away into vain discussion. Basically, they're engaged in all of this talk, but it's not building anybody up. It's not strengthening anybody. It's not helping anybody. It's not edifying anybody. It's just distracting and dividing the body. Paul says, that should not be so. You know, a friend of mine said something to me that I was really impressed by. I said, I'm going to put that in the sermon. He said to me, you know, often people say that uh, head knowledge without heart knowledge is no knowledge. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, but do you also know that heart knowledge without head knowledge is also no knowledge? And I thought about that. I said, that's really good. That's going into the sermon. What was that? What was he saying? He, he, he was saying that to correctly understand sound doctrine in the head, to mentally grasp it, must also be followed by sound doctrine piercing the heart and being implanted. And the end result, Paul is saying, is what? Is love. Like if you know the word of God, you know theology, 
it should lead to greater love for God and love for others. And that's the last implication that we'll discuss. Sound doctrine should always lead to love. Now, sometimes we are uh, turned off by too much talk about theology. Uh, maybe you've met these kinds of people who uh, love doctrine and study doctrine and pursue doctrine. And they're just like the nastiest, meanest, untransformed people in the world. And those people are an example of those who have head knowledge with no heart knowledge. But maybe you've also met people who say they love God. And then when you ask them to talk about God, they can't really tell you anything about him other than how much they love God. And this is an example of heart knowledge without head knowledge. You know, one of the, the things I, I love and enjoy doing as a pastor is leading engaged couples in premarital counseling. Um, and one, one of the things we do in our first session um, is to ask, what do you love about the other person? And, and I like it because I, I just love it when, uh, you know, one of the, one of the um, fiancés with uh, great, like, they're beaming and with admiration and affection. They, they just, like, keep talking, oh, I love this about them and I love this about them. And, and you know it's good when at one point I'm like, all right, just let's wrap it up. <laughs> like, 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 come on. Because they just enjoy talking so much about what they love about the other person. And often it happens like, oh, I got to know them and I began to notice certain things and I began to, to really appreciate them. And, and the next thing you know, like those things about them stirred, caused, fueled my love for that person. And it's very alarming if I hear somebody like, I, I just love them. And I say, well, what do you love? And you're like, well, well give me like two days. I'll come back to you. Because you don't love somebody and then try to figure out reasons why you love them. In the same way, coming to know God, coming to know sound doctrine when you come to know God, you learn about him that leads to love for him. You can't just say you love him, but not know anything about him. And so when you understand sound doctrine, like the doctrine of God, and you, and you, see, and you learn about the perfection of his attributes and the perfection of his work, it has a way of getting you beyond just acknowledging, hmm, that's true, uh, God, or appreciating, like, oh, that's really interesting. It leads to adoration and affection. It leads to love. In the same way, when you learn about the doctrine of man, and we learn that humanity is created in the image of God and every human being has value and dignity, there's no way you can learn that, truly grasp it, and then be cold and indifferent to the vulnerable and the oppressed and the needy and the poor, the widowed and the orphans. Friends, you can't learn about the doctrine of redemption. God forgave you of your sins when you did nothing to deserve it. He did not count your offense against you, but moved towards you with grace and compassion and sacrifice. You can't know that doctrine and then go around treating people like enemies and viewing them as unforgivable ingrates and they deserve nothing from me other than the worst judgment. They don't deserve any of my grace or forgiveness or patience. Sound doctrine should always lead to love. And so if this church commits itself to doctrine, it'll turn this household into a house of worship, love for the Lord, and a house of peace, love for one another. And Bobby Jameson wrote a book called Sound Doctrine, and he writes something really helpful that I want to share with you. He says this, he says, if bitterness, gossip, and slander are tearing your church apart, sound doctrine is one of the most necessary tools for sewing it back together. If rivalries and divisions are suffocating the church's love, 
It needs to breathe anew the rich air of sound doctrine. In order to love the unlovely and to reconcile enemies, we must remember that God has done those very things for us in Christ. You see, Paul says the aim of his charge to correct and confront false doctrine is so that love might come forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. How does that happen? It happens like this. Before sound doctrine leads you to love God, sound doctrine leads you to God's love. You see, before doctrine tells you what to do for God, it first reminds you of what God has done for you. Because all the doctrines in the Bible, doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, all the doctrines of the Bible are ultimately working together in unison to point to this one central truth of all scripture. What is the summary of all scripture? It is the gospel message. God so loves sinners like you and me that he willingly paid the price to redeem us through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus, to forgive us and welcome us into his family. Why are different doctrines and myths and genealogies so problematic? Because they distract us from the main point of what God has revealed in the Bible, and that is his saving mercy to us in Jesus. What does sound doctrine do? What does theology do when done right? It points us back to the love of God shown to us in Jesus dying for our sins, giving us new life. And only when we are filled first with the love of God's great love can we then love God and love others. This is why 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says this, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Sound doctrine doesn't first tell you, love God. Sound doctrine first tells you, God loved you before you ever loved him. And when you understand that, when that becomes the wind behind your sails, it empowers you to love God. Because that's how the gospel works. It's a beautiful dynamic. It says the love of God fuels love for God. And in the household of God, Sound doctrine helps us love one another. Let me end with this quote from Bobby Jameson once more. He says this, if there are people in our churches who are hard to love, well, so are we. That didn't stop our Savior from loving us all the way to the cross. The more deeply we are shaped by that truth, the more our lives and our churches will be conformed to the image of his love. You know, false teaching was a real problem in the ancient church, and quite frankly, it's still a problem in the churches today. But the best way to guard against it is to promote and protect sound doctrine. And what will that do for us as a church? I really hope it doesn't make us haughty, arrogant, self-righteous, combative, argumentative people, but it makes us into people who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as we love ourselves. It's my prayer that we become a church robust in doctrine, not shallow or shy about it. Robust and deep, taking it seriously, but not just written down on paper, not just preached from the pulpit, but love that is practiced among the pews. Let's pray.